continue in our series now, and uh, if you've been with us, we kicked off a new series in Genesis, in the beginning, God, the gospel in Genesis, and so we are moving uh, along in that, and we're going to be still kind of a couple verses in chapter 1, uh, but mostly in chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Genesis, uh, New Testament book, Old Testament book of Genesis, the very first book in the Old Testament, and um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black Bible in the row in front of you. Um, and again, you just open that up, and it should be like page 1, 2, or 3, or somewhere in that neighborhood. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 27 and 28. The words will be on the screen for you as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. And then we're going to move into chapter 2 starting in verse 18, okay? So Genesis 1, 27 reads this way. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jump over to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I said this, I explained this in uh, the first service, and so I'll explain it to you as well. Sometimes when you're reading the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, it might be confusing because we just read in Genesis 1:27 that he created the male and female, and now you jump over to chapter 2, verse 18, and you're like, wait a minute, how is he making a, you know, so... The point is, is in Genesis 2, is, is, is kind of retelling the creation story, but giving more details. All right, so that, that's, that's why you, you, you see that happening there. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of uh, the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, would you pray with me? Father God, we just again come before you and we thank you for your word um, God, we thank you that your word is um, inspired, that it is God-breathed. Um, Father, we pray that as we work, continue to worship you through studying of your word, God, that we would just, as we exalt Jesus in this place, as we've already done, that your spirit would just continue to move and that we would see how wonderful and glorious and beautiful Jesus is and that we would see our sin and we would see our need for him. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So a little over, a little under two weeks ago, actually, uh, we were out as a family, and we were running some errands one night, and so we decided to stop at Target. 
uh, here in Chester. I think my oldest son, Jude, he likes to call it Tarjay, right? So we stopped at Tarjay, and uh, we were in the parking lot, and I had just put the truck in park, and I had just opened the door when my oldest son, Jude, uh, leaned forward and asked me and Robin this question. He said, Mom, Dad, can a man marry a man, and can a woman marry a woman? So I proceeded to shut my door, <laughs> looked over at Robin with eyes as big as saucers, and, uh, and I, I tell you, man, it was, uh, as a parent, you know those types of questions or conversations are coming, but I did not expect to have that question or that conversation with my eight-year-old who is in second grade. When I was in second grade, that wasn't even on my radar, right? It's just, just, it's just, it simply reveals where we are as a culture today. And the reality is, is that as followers of Jesus, we can't, uh, we can't avoid it. Uh, we can't bury our heads in the sand and hope it goes away. Uh, but, but neither can we disengage from the culture or go to the other extreme and, and be harsh or unkind or dogmatic or, or, or whatever it is that condemning. Uh, for instance, uh, I have a cousin who is gay and, and I can remember instances uh, 20 years ago, okay, 20 years ago, we would be with our family, and I would be out with my cousins, and I can remember times where they would make jokes, or they would speak unkind, or say harsh things about our cousin, not with him around, obviously, but they would say those things, and sadly, I would join in with them, and I can tell you that... Uh, over the years, I have repented of those actions, and I, I can say that, that all that does is it reveals how dirty my own heart is, and it reveals that I need Jesus just as much as my cousin needs Jesus. And unfortunately, the tendency for some Christians, not all Christians, but the tendency for Christians is to, is to speak unkind or to speak harsh uh, about homosexuals and to regard people as the problem rather than uh, our sin as the problem. The issue of homosexuality is, is a very personal issue uh, for, for, very, for a lot of people. It's a painful issue. Uh, for many of us, it's real. Uh, most of us in this room, I think, know uh, someone who either identifies as homosexual or feels same-sex attraction. They may be our friends. They may be a co-worker. They may be neighbors or sons or daughters, family members. And as Christians, it is critical that we are aware not only of what the Bible says, but how the gospel, the gospel is good news. It's the good news that God lovingly pursues after us, and he sent Jesus to this earth to die and pay the penalty for our sins, and that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we can be restored, rescued back to God. And so it's critical that we know how the gospel speaks to this issue so that we can better minister to those around us. Because listen to me, our only hope in life and death is Jesus. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus. And so that's my goal for today. My goal for today is, is, is three things. What does the Bible say? How does the gospel speak to it? And how do we respond? Okay? What does the Bible say? How does the gospel speak to it? And how do we respond? Now let me address one more thing before I dive in to this text that we just read. And I know this isn't true for everyone in this room, uh, but the reality is that there is a generational gap regarding the view of uh, not just homosexual sins, but heterosexual sins as well. 
And what I mean by that is that some of us grew up in a culture where Christian ideologies and rules were, were followed, right? All, all sexual sins were viewed as black and white, right? You, you knew and you said, this, this is what it was. Uh, but others maybe in this room have, have grown up, and as much as we may not agree with it or, or, think, or, or think it's true, the reality is a lot of people, younger generations, were growing up in a post-Christian culture. Right? It's just the reality of it. We are a post-Christian culture. And the message to you has always been, uh, be who you want to be, do what makes you happy, and still, there are others who maybe are in the middle of that generational gap who, who are on the fence, and they're just unsure of what to believe. They really don't know what the Bible says and how the gospel applies to it. And so I would just ask, man, that, that whatever you fall on that spectrum, um, the reality is, is that all of us in this room have, uh, have room to grow in our understanding and in our reactions to homosexuals and heter- homosexual and heterosexual sins. And so, with that in mind, uh, let's start with what the Bible says, okay? So, last week, uh, we saw God's beautiful design, part one, and that He created human beings in His image. Uh, And I want to continue to build on that today as we move through Genesis 2, because um, it is in these verses where we read God's beautiful design specifically for man and woman. In these verses, I want to point out four ways or four things that Genesis 1-2, chapters 1 and 2 establish how they establish God's beautiful design for marriage and for uh, man and woman. All right, so if you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. Um, If if you forget something or you kind of like, I didn't hear what he said there, uh, you can just simply email me and I will send you the whole manuscript of my sermon and you can have it, Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll go from there, okay? So the very first thing we see in this is the way in which woman was created indicates uh, that she is man's divinely designed complement. She is man's divinely designed complement. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, we see that God has taken something from uh, the man, uh, one of his ribs, in order to make a helper suitable for him. Now, uh, I want you to think about this for a second because we read it. Uh, God has put Adam in this garden, he has put him over this garden, and he has put him in charge of naming all of the animals. And as Adam is watching these animals go by, he is probably picking up the fact that they come in pairs, right? That, that some animals have parts and others don't have parts. Uh, and, and then he realizes that there's no helper suitable for him. And what makes the woman unique is both that she is like the man expressed by Adam when he says, bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, and that she is also different from the man. So, so what you see here is you see gender difference, right? Sexuality is a, a good part of God's beautiful design, right? It says Adam delights that the woman is not like another animal and not another man. She is exactly what the man needs, a suitable helper, equal to the man, but also his opposite. And so what you see here is, is, is equality in worth and value, right? We talked about being created in the image of God last week and what that means. And so right here you see uh, both the, the man and the woman created in the image of God, uh, equality in worth and value. Uh, the second thing you see is the nature of the one flesh union assumes two persons of the opposite sex. 
Okay, so the phrase one flesh in the text points to sexual intimacy, right? So sex is a good thing created by God in the beginning. Um, it, it also makes reference to the nakedness in verse 25. So, so the act of sexual intercourse uh, brings a man and a woman together as one relationally and organically. Uh, that, that's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament would say in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 not to join yourself together uh, with a prostitute uh, because that one flesh, the idea of one flesh, that sexual union. Uh, but also in our text, the word therefore in the beginning of ch- chapter 2, verse 24, connects the intimacy of becoming one flesh with the woman. Okay? Which leads us to the third and that is only two persons of the opposite sex can fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Only two people of the opposite sex can fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God said, make little Adams and Eves everywhere. Right? Fill, fill the earth. Homosexual relationships, by their very nature, do not meet this definition, nor can they feel, feel, fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Which leads to the fourth that you see in this text. You accomplish the command to be fruitful and multiply in the beautiful design of marriage relationship. You see it right there, chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one of the arguments um, that homosexuals' uh, relationships have is that Jesus in the New Testament never speaks against um, homosexuality, uh, which, is, which is, is kind of true. He doesn't necessarily speak right against homosexuality, but uh, Jesus does, however, reinforce the Genesis account that we just read in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10 when he is having a, a debate with the religious leaders of his day and uh, over this uh, issue of divorce. And Jesus... Um, reminds his audience that God, from the beginning, made them male and female, and then he quotes from this text, Genesis 2, 24. That's God's beautiful design. But also, Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 7, or Mark chapter 7, uh, talks about sexual immorality being a sin. And the Greek word that is used there is a Greek word called pornea, which is where we get our English word pornography from. And it would include any, any sexual sin, any heterosexual sin, any homosexual sin that falls short of the Genesis 1-2 picture of one man with one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. So, so this is the, the, the picture of God's beautiful design in the beginning. And in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 3, when sin enters the world, from that point forward... Every time the Bible talks about any sexual sin, it is in violation of Genesis 1-2. Right? It's in violation of this beautiful design that God set up here at the beginning of creation. Now, this is extremely important. It's very important that you hear what I'm about to say. And I want to, for a moment, to set aside uh, same-sex attraction or homosexuality And just talk about the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. And that is this, that every single human being 
born after Adam was, has inherited a sinful nature. We talked about this last week. Um, actually, I talk about this just about every, every week, but I really want to stress it this week. Uh, we are all born with a natural bent towards sin. We are all born with a natural tendency to rebel against our Creator God. What you need to understand is, is that we are not victims of Adam's sin, but we are willing participants in Adam's sin. Romans chapter 5, jot it down, you can read it later. God created us to love, to serve, and to worship Him alone. God created us so that we would find ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him and Him alone. But what you need to understand is sin distorts our affections. It distorts our worship. It distorts our desires, and it tells us to give that love and that affection that's supposed to be for God and God alone to give it elsewhere. And the reason why this is so important for us to understand is because oftentimes people will say things like, well, if I didn't have this desire, if God didn't, if I didn't have this desire, then God, God must have given me this desire, right? So I need to act on it. And that's why I want to point this out is because um, our, our desires are, are sinful, because we're born with this, this, this tendency to, towards sin. I love what Jackie Hill Perry, she writes a book called Gay Girl, Good God. And, uh, and this is what she writes. Um, she was a, a former uh, lesbian uh, converted to, to, to Christianity. She became uh, a Christian. And this is what she writes in her book. She says, being born human meant that I had the capacity for affection and logic Being born sinful meant both were inherently broken. Desires exist because God gave them to us, but homosexual and heterosexual desires exist because sin exists too. And so you see this being played out in a very uh, familiar passage um, in, in, in the New Testament book of Romans. You don't have to turn there. I'll have the words on the screen for you. Uh, but Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 is probably one of the clearest pictures of the sinfulness of man that ultimately culminates in chapter 3, verse 23, where the Apostle Paul just makes a blanket statement and says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul is writing from the city of Corinth. Right? He's writing a, the letter to the Romans in the city of Corinth. And what you need to understand is, is that Corinth was an absolutely sexually charged city. I mean, it was full of all kinds of sexual immorality. And so Paul is surrounded by all of this. And this is the picture we have uh, as Paul is writing these words to the Romans. And let's, you can follow along on the screen with me. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator, 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who, uh, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I I really want you uh, to go back and read this today or at some point see the progression, right? I want you to see how, how sin... This sin that we're born with, right? This natural tendency to, to rebel against God, how this sin distorts not only our worship, but it distorts our desires, right? We, we have chosen to worship creation over the Creator. We've exchanged God's beautiful design for our lives for our own preferences. We have all, every single one of us in this room, have rebelled against God, all of us without exception have done this. And so I want to just take a moment and just level the playing field here. Because as Christians, not all of us, now I'm not throwing all of us in there, but generally Christians have a tendency to single out homosexuality and view it as the plague, right? Like this is the, this is the one sin, right? And what I want you to see is that we are all guilty every single one of us, for looking for sexual expression or sexual fulfillment outside of the design of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Okay? Whether you are having sex with someone outside of the covenant of marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, or just whoever, or you look at pornography, or you have ever fantasized about another man or a woman who is not your spouse. Jesus said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. The bottom line is, all sexual sin, heterosexual, homosexual sin, thought, practice, desire, is a direct, direct rebellion against God and His beautiful design in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So I think it would be wise for us to stop kind of looking at the speck in others' eyes when there is a ginormous log in our own eye because we are all affected by the fall in Genesis 3. And again, this is so important because, listen, our sin does not change or set aside or adjust the beautiful design that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not like God makes allowances it's not like he says, yeah, I know it's tough for you guys down there. I know that this is hard. I know you've prayed about it. I know you've tried really, really hard. Uh, so, so go ahead. I, I know this is what you want to do. So just go. God doesn't do that. God does not make allowances. God is holy. He is righteous. He does not make allowances. So outside of Genesis 1 and 2, um, I just kind of wanted to level the playing field there. Is everybody good? Okay. Uh, outside of Genesis 1 and 2, there are a number of passages that deal with homosexuality. Listen, we're not going to have time to explore all those passages today. 
But at the end of the sermon, I do plan on sharing a few resources that if you'd like to continue to study and look at, or if you have questions, we'd be more than happy to kind of walk with you through those things. Um, but you don't have to turn your, turn your Bibles very far to get to Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going to spend any time there. I hear you turning your page. You can just write it down, okay? Uh, we're actually going to be there in just a few months as we walk through Genesis. Uh, but but you'll, you'll, you'll see uh, what's going on there at Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but I do want you to write down in the New Testament um, the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is a very short book. It's towards the end of the Bible. And verse 7, uh, he writes this. He says, um, The reason Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed was because of sexual immorality and perversions. Um, now, I point you there because a lot of times people will argue and say, well, the reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is because of inhospitality. Okay? And, uh, and I don't know, I don't think that God would destroy a city because um, the men of the city wanted to just, you know, they, they, they didn't want to offer, you know, the, the, the guests a cup of coffee uh, or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So, so we'll look at that in a few months. But, but then you can jump over to uh, the Old Testament book of Leviticus. I know you guys love Leviticus. I know you guys read Leviticus a lot. Leviticus is actually, Leviticus is an awesome book. I would encourage you to read it. We might preach to it. I, matter of fact, we will one of these days, I promise. Uh, and you guys are going to love it. All right? uh, but you can jump over to Leviticus uh, chapter 18, 22, um, and chapter 20, verse 13, where it says this. It says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, let me make it very clear. God is not saying that the person is detestable. He's saying that the act is detestable. God loves the person. Okay? So, so here's the thing, though. Levit- you may not be familiar with Leviticus, but Leviticus has a ton of laws and rules. That's why I think it's so hard for us to, to read through Leviticus. Uh, but we understand that they were given to Israel, God's chosen people. Um, and so a couple of objections that people have with these two verses in Leviticus is that uh, they're outdated. And are they really even still relevant to our lives today? And or why do Christians uh, pick out a few of the commands like this one but they disregard uh, the other ones. Like, like, which laws do you pick and choose to follow? And those are all great questions. Uh, Leviticus says a lot of goofy things. I mean, you read through it, it says things like, you know, it prohibits not wearing two kinds of fabric. It talks about not eating bacon. It talks about not, not trimming the, the, the sides of your beard, right? So it was kind of like no shave November all the time uh, in the Old Testament. And so these objections... Um, the objections is if we don't follow the laws, all the laws, then why should we follow this one? And I think a lot of it has to do with just our, our not understanding the Old Testament or not understanding the book of Leviticus. Um, a couple of things to consider is Israel had ceremonial laws, they had civil laws, and they had moral laws. If you were with us last year, we walked through the book of Acts and Galatians. We spent a lot of time talking about those, those three things. A lot of the ceremonial laws and civil laws were specifically given to God's people to set them apart from other pagan nations as they entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing of milk and honey. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 20, he talks about how he came to fulfill the law, but not to abolish the law. And I think it's important for us to understand what that means. And what that means is that the law, right, the Old Testament law was an incomplete picture of God um, that pointed forward to Jesus. So Leviticus, everything in Leviticus is pointing us forward to Jesus. All the sacrifices, all the, you know, the, the, the temple and, and, and everything that you see there is pointing us forward to Jesus. So when Jesus came, he freed us from the law. Uh, like, for instance, he, he declared all food clean. Right? We can eat bacon now. Amen. Right? Uh, but, but not by, but he didn't abolish, but he, he fulfilled it, right? So, so he gave us in himself a more perfect picture of God, right? So all the, the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all those things pointed to Jesus. But when it comes to the moral law, Jesus actually heightened the moral law. Again, you can go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about how if you even, uh, you've heard it said, if you commit murder, he says, if, I, if you even hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. You know, we talk about lust. If you heard it said, you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say, if you even lust, right? So Jesus kind of amplified, he, he heightened the law. In fact, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Paul uses two Greek terms to talk about homosexuality, and he uses the same words that are used in the Greek translation of Leviticus chapter 18. And chapter 20. In other words, there is a clear link between the teaching um, in the Old Testament on homosexuality and the teaching of the New Testament on homosexuality. Again, if you were with us during our study of Acts and Galatians, last year you may remember when the Gentiles were, were coming to the Lord and they were coming into the church, the Jews struggled with this, right? Because they were like, hey, you guys need to follow our ceremonial rituals, right? And everybody was like, no, 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 no. They, don't need, they don't need to become Jews first, right? They just, they're, they're, they just come to Christ, and that's it. But if you read through there, you'll notice that they say, hey, okay, as Gentiles, you do need to put away sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. So bottom line is Leviticus was a part of the Bible Jesus read. It was a part of the Bible that Jesus believed. And the Bible, Jesus did not want to abolish and so it's important that we take seriously again the holiness of god and in leviticus you see that you see the holiness of god and the requirements of that he is holy and righteous god who takes sin seriously therefore we should take sin seriously as well so where does that leave us right if we have a a holy righteous god and our sin whether it be heterosexual sin or homosexual sin separates us from God, the only solution is the gospel. Right? Every single one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. And the good news of the gospel is that God loves homosexual and heterosexual sinners. Right? All of us. So much that He sent His Son to pay the price for all of our sexual sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So how does the gospel affect our sexual sin? How does the gospel impact our lives when it comes to sexual sin? Well, again, this is why we preach the gospel week in and week out here at Chester Christian Church. This is why our goal every week is to exalt Jesus. Because I believe that if we can even grasp just a little bit of what Jesus did for us, that that in our rebellion against God, in our turning away from Him, that God pursued after us. Again, we're talking about the single storyline of the Bible that we talked about in Genesis here, right? That God pursues us and that He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to this earth to put on flesh. And Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live. And then when He was on the cross, God put all of our sexual sin... Every single thought, desire, practice, every single thing, past, present, future, was put on Jesus on the cross, and God's wrath towards our sin was poured out on Jesus. When you begin to look at that and think about that, that here Jesus is this pure, holy, perfect person, died in our place, took our sexual sin. He was pure and became impure so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. When you begin to think about that, that'll melt your heart. It'll change you. Where sin distorts our worship, the gospel reorders our worship By God's grace, the gospel reorders our worship so that he is supreme in our hearts, right? It helps us to keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. It helps to keep us, our eyes centered on Jesus. That's why I say, man, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. You need to wake up in the morning. You need to go to bed at night. Throughout the day, you need to think about the gospel Right, so the gospel reorders our worship where, where sin has, has caused us to worship creation of the creator, right? The gospel reorders that and, and it puts our focus back on Jesus. The gospel gives us new desires. This is huge. Galatians chapter 5, we looked at this again last year. It's a great picture. It says, Paul's writing this. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So again, a lot of people will say, well, man, if I have the desire, then it must be okay. We've got to remember, again, the doctrine of sin. Our desires are broken. (laughs) And this is what Paul is saying. There is, this, there is a war. Whether you know it or not, man, there is an absolute battle going on for your soul. There is, a, there is a war between your flesh and the Spirit of God that is living in you. This is why Paul says, I have crucified myself. I have put myself to death. That is not just a one-time deal. That's an everyday thing. Because your fleshly desires are broken and they want what you want. And so there's this constant battle of living in the Spirit of God, being in the Word, being in community, being with each other. As we push each other towards holiness, as we push each other towards more of Jesus, there's this constant battle. 
And then you've got to see this between the flesh and the spirit. And the gospel tells us that when we come to Christ, that, that you are conquered by a superior desire because Jesus is more glorious, he is more beautiful, he is more satisfying than all the pleasures of the world. So the gospel gives us, reorders our worship, the gospel gives us new desires, the gospel gives us a new identity. This is huge. And in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, the passage that we were looking at there, Paul uh, lists a number of sins. Uh, he, and he says, people who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in that list of sins, you see sexual immorality, right? So heterosexual sin, as well as homosexuality sin, right, are listed. But in verse 11, get this, verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This is who you are. You are... A new creation in Christ. You were dead and now you are alive. Right? You, you're no longer, uh, your, your identity is no longer in your past. Right? Your identity is no longer in whatever it is that you, your identity is in Christ now. Just a new identity. And in this passage, chapters of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing specifically with sexual sin. And he says, he says, listen to me, your body is not your own. All other sins you commit outside your body, but all sexual sin is committed against the body. He says, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. You were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your body. He gives us a new identity. Right? Our identity is in Christ. I love what uh, Jackie Hill Perry, who wrote the, the book, The uh, uh, Gay Girl, Good God, and I love what she says. The last chapter of that book, she talks about the heterosexual gospel because she says oftentimes what people do is when they talk to, to homosexuals or they're trying to you know, share the gospel with them, they kind of dangle uh, uh, in front of them like a carrot this idea of, of marriage. Like this is, this is the goal, right? This is what you want. You want, you want this type of relationship. And so she says that people uh, try, to, try to push them in that direction, right? Because like, almost like their identity should be in this marriage, and she says what ends up happening is, is, is that people focus on that and all they're doing is replacing one idol with another. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. See, your, your identity is not in being married. Your identity is not in singleness. God can use both to honor and glorify Him. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Your worth and your value comes from Christ uh, I love what she says. She says, the reason to turn from sin has always been to turn to Jesus. It's not, you don't turn from sin to, to get into a marriage or whatever it is. You, you turn from sin to turn to Jesus. The bottom line is that God in his grace and mercy can take every one of our heterosexual and homosexual sins and he can redeem them. No matter what your past, no matter what your struggle God can redeem and he can rescue. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen? Do you believe that? So here's my challenge, okay? This is how we respond. First and foremost, my prayer is that every single one of us would examine our own hearts. That every single one of us would take a hard look into our hearts and that we would be convicted of our own sins. 
Don't sit there and be thinking about people in your life who need to hear this message or who struggle with sexual sins. Okay? Every single one of us struggles with something. Something. Uh, I love what uh, another name I'm going to throw out to you that I would encourage you to write down is Rosaria Butterfield. She um, was a lesbian activist um, who wrote all kinds of different articles and different things and and she actually came to know Jesus and she's got an awesome testimony. Google it when you get home. Look, find, read every single thing you can of hers. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. But she writes this. She says, if we spend more time hating our own sin, we would be more responsible in, in our dealings with, with others. And that's so true. And, and the reality is, is that God calls any heart that is not submitted to Jesus sinful so you talk about our affections and our desires and our our worship right anything that is not directed towards God is sinful and so our, our challenge then is to our life should be marked by a life of every single day confession and repentance right that's what I mean our our should be like Again, preaching the gospel to ourselves day in and day out. God, I need you. Forgive me for this thought. Forgive me for whatever. Our our lives should be marked by that because we hate sin in our life, because we want to rid ourselves of it. Uh, Rosario Rosario Butterfield, she also talks about how, you know, you, you can't, there's no dual citizenship for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus. You can't be habitually practicing sin in your life and then say you're a follower of Jesus. It just doesn't happen. You can't have one foot in heaven and one on earth. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's a life that is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we have to just continually live a life of repentance and confession and preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? Remembering, wake, waking up each day, saying, God, I know, I know who I am in Christ. I know that God loves me. And then living out of that every single day. The second thing is, is community. What we've got to be a church that lives in community, right? Where, where, the, where the gospel is modeled. We've got to be a church that is, is willing to be honest and transparent, and the only way that we can do that, man, is if, if we are not just, I mean, I, I love our small groups and we want to continue to do our small groups, man. We need to be in each other's homes on a regular basis where we're having conversations, where we can actually have conversations like this. I love what, what Rosaria Butterfield said in one of her videos. She said, you know, um, community doesn't happen just on Sunday morning, right? She says, typically, somebody at the coffee uh, stand, at the coffee table, uh, in between services is, isn't going to lean over to somebody and say, hey, by the way, I struggle with pornography. It just isn't going to happen, right? It's going to happen in community, man, when you are doing life together, where you are modeling the gospel. And what I mean by that is, you see, the gospel is freeing. Like Jesus said, I've come to set you free. And so if you are living a life of sin and you are bound by that, you're not free, you're living in darkness. And the good news of the gospel is, is that 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 Jesus has come to set us free, that the gospel uh, drives out that guilt and that fear and that shame that you're hiding in there, right? That's, that's why we don't want people to know 
because we've got that, that fear and that guilt and that shame and the gospel drives it out. And so the only way that can be driven out is if we're in community and we can be honest and transparent about our struggles. Every single one of us struggles. And so we've, we've, we've got we've to be able to do that. Uh, third, we show love and compassion. I mean, we, we've got to be willing to walk alongside of people. We've got to have conviction. We've we got to know what the Word says. Go ahead and put those resources up, Gary. We've got to know what the Word says. We've got to be convicted about this, but we've got to walk with people. We can't, we can't just disengage. We can't be hard. I mean, that's silly. We can't be harsh and unkind. Again, we, we've got to be able to engage. We've got to be able to walk alongside of people. I love what Jeremy Chambers, he's a good friend of mine. He's been here to preach a couple times, but he does ministry in downtown Richmond. And he and his wife had developed a relationship with this uh, lesbian couple and they were walking with them through some difficult things. And they were just, over time, sharing the gospel with them. And this couple one night asked Jeremy, he said, So what you're telling me is that if I give my life to Jesus, I've got to give up my homosexual lifestyle. And Jeremy said, No, 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 it's worse than that. You've got to give up everything. And that's it. Yeah, we've we got to be willing to to walk with people. We've got to be willing to, 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 to love and show compassion, to be Jesus to them. Right? Uh, so th- these are some resources, man. I would encourage you to pick them up. Uh, the book on your left is a book by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, it's called What the Bible Says About Homosexuality. It's a very short read. It's about 130-some pages. I read it in one sitting. You could read it, knock it out. Um, fantastic. Listen, it answers a ton of questions. So I, I would encourage you, if you are in that generational gap where you are um, uh, post-Christian, get that book. Look, read it multiple times, okay, because it's going to help you out. If you are in that generational gap where you uh, kind of grew up in, in a culture where, you know, we all followed the rules and sin was black or white, uh, I would encourage you to get Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. That is just a fantastic book. Um, Counterculture by David Platt. He's got a couple of chapters in there about sexual uh, sins and homosexuality. Pick these books up, man. Read them. Um, I would let you borrow mine, but then I, I, I would never get it back, so you can't borrow mine. Um, but, it, but here's the thing, man. We, we, we just need to continue to grow in um, our awareness and our knowledge of this and... Um, and just pray, all right? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to close out our service. Um, our, our, uh, I'm going to have you stand here in just a moment. I'm going to close this out in prayer. But, but after the service is over, our prayer team is going to be available throughout the room. If anybody here needs to pray or, or just needs encouragement, I want to invite you to go to them. They're going to be wearing a thing that says prayer on it. Um, I'll be up front here if you want to come and talk to me uh, about what it means to give your life to Jesus and follow Him. I'd love to chat with you about that. I'll be up front. So, I, again, I just encourage you those different. Or if you want to pray with each other in your seats, that's, that's fine with me. Um, but I'm going to close this out here. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me.